Please take a seat and turn your well, attention to Well, good morning, church. Pastor Ray here and my family and I are looking forward to being back with you next week. But right now, I have the great privilege of introducing to you a very dear friend of mine who will be bringing God's word to us this morning. His name is Nathan Penny, and he's the pastor of Counseling Ministries at Harvest Bible Chapel, Oakville. I'm so excited you get to sit under his teaching through the power of the Holy Spirit. You are going to be blessed. So will you please, as he comes forward, give him a warm Harvest Ottawa welcome. Amen. Well, good morning. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, uh, Peter says this. He says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Let's pray. Let's pray. And so, Father, we've sang about how you are holy and how your son is holy and your Holy Spirit is holy. God, you are holy. That means that you are absolutely perfect in every conceivable way. You are holy, holy, holy. Perfect in wrath, perfect in anger, perfect in justice, perfect in love, perfect in grace, perfect in mercy, perfect in wisdom, perfect in knowledge, perfect in power. You are eternal, you are present everywhere, and you are here with us this morning. You are right here with us this morning. And because you are holy, you call us to uphold you as holy in our hearts and in our lives. And this is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot muster this up. We cannot uh, produce this in our own strength. And so would you please meet with every single one of us this morning. You see where we're at. You see where we're struggling. You see uh, what we're believing and what we're not. You know everything. And it is your will that you are upheld as holy in my heart and in our hearts today. Open up our eyes. Please show us the greatness of who you are, especially this morning. The greatness of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, if you've got a Bible there, please go ahead and open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you are here this morning and you do not have a Bible, please go ahead and slip up your hand. One of uh, the ushers would be more than happy to get a Bible uh, to you, and please just slip up your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, please accept that as our gift to you this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, and I just want to say, so happy, so excited to be here with you this morning. It is a great joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 14, and as you're turning there, by a show of hands, how many of us have ever ridden a horse? Hands up. Who's ridden a horse here today? Okay. How many people have never ridden a horse? Never ridden a horse in your life? Okay, so quite a few. Quite a few. Never ridden a horse. So for you guys who've never ridden a horse, just want to prepare you right now for what it's like to ride a horse. So first time I ever rode a horse, 13 years old at summer camp. And the way it worked at, our, at the camp that I went to is all the boys would gather together at the dock first thing in the morning, and one of the leaders would list out all the activities for the day. And one of the activities, of course was horseback riding. And it was an activity that none of the boys ever chose. I mean, why would you want to? You've got to go to like a smelly barn. You've got to put on like this helmet hat thing. You've got to put on these big boots. And then, and then you've got to ride a horse and you're going to smell like horse for the rest of the day. Why would you want to do that when you could go windsurfing, right? No offense, horse people. No offense. 
but, but, but no one ever chose horseback riding. And so it was kind of like a joke. And so this one day, my friend and I are sitting down there at the dock, and one of the leaders says, okay, horseback riding. He wants to go horseback riding. But then it was kind of like a joke. No one ever put up their hand. But you know when you're a teenager, and you kind of look at your friend like, I so dare you to do that. And then your friend's looking at you like, no, I so dare you to do that. And next thing you know, like, we're, so, we're going to do this, aren't we? And so our hands both go up, and then we're on the trail. We are horseback riding. Neither of us have ever been on a horse. So I'm here, my friend is over here, and we're going down this trail, and we're just kind of walking along. It's like, this is amazing. This is actually, like, incredible. I've been missing out. Like, I feel like a cowboy. We're just kind of riding along there. Like, this is great. And that's when someone at the front of the line decided we weren't going fast enough. And so it's like this wave that's kind of, kind of heading toward me, like, oh no, what's going to happen now? And if you've never been on a horse before, when you start going faster than walking, it's called a trot. And this is what it's like. It's like, ow, 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 okay? And, and I was like, what am I supposed to do? And I look at my friend, and he panics, and he drops the reins, and he just grabs hold of the horse by the neck. And then, and then his feet come out of the stirrups, and now he's like totally horizontal, and it's bouncing on top of the horse. And then he starts to slide over to the side, and he's like kind of riding along like this, and then he's all the way around this side and then he lets go and he got stepped on a little bit but he was okay he was okay but but here's the here's the thing about riding a horse for the first time and then every single time since you're you're able to control this big beautiful powerful animal with just these two little pieces of leather called reins you pull the rein this way the horse goes this way you pull the rein this way, the horse goes this way. You, you pull the reins back like this, and the horse stops. It's amazing. You can control a horse with reins. And in the same way that horses are controlled by reins, people are controlled by something as well. You know what it is? Skill testing question. What are people controlled by? People are controlled by their hearts. People are controlled by their hearts. So what then controls our hearts? This is the question. Because whatever controls our hearts controls us. Whatever controls our hearts controls us. So question, what controls your heart? What controls your heart? What controls my heart? What controls our hearts? Because listen, every day we are going through our lives and we are making choices and we're making decisions and we're choosing directions what is controlling our hearts? You may be thinking, well, that word control, they don't really like that word. That kind of sounds bad. Well, it is bad if we're being controlled by something bad. But what if we are controlled by something that is awesome? What if we are controlled by something that is good? What if we are controlled by something that is truly great? What if you and I are controlled by the love of Christ? The love of Christ. Does that describe you? Would you say that you are controlled by the love of Christ? Is, this, is the love that Jesus Christ has for you personally so overwhelming in your life that you feel like I'm just controlled by the love of Christ? Because listen, if we're not being controlled by the love of Christ, then we're being controlled by something else. If you and I are not being controlled by the love of Christ, then we're being controlled by something else. You may be thinking, well, like what? Well, like this, like selfish desires. Selfish desires, like the desire to be respected and the desire to be praised or the desire to be liked or the desire to be uh, uh, successful 
or the desire to be right all the time or the desire for some wicked, sinful pleasure or the desire for money or the desire for possessions or endless entertainment or to get my way all the time or to have these perfectly obedient children that just never sin and always do what they're told or, or to have this spouse who just always agrees with me and, and always is, is perfect or to, have, or to be honored or exalted or loved by everyone or to have this perfect, trouble-free, problem-free, easy life and on and on and on. So often... We can be controlled by selfish desires. Question, what selfish desire do you struggle with the most in your life? What selfish desire do you struggle with the most in your life? Maybe thinking, well, I'm not really sure. I mean, how would I know that? Here's how. Follow your anger. Follow your anger. What is it that gets you frustrated? What is it that gets you angry? Do you find yourself getting frustrated or angry when you're not getting the respect that you want from your coworkers or from your boss or from your family or from all those people who are driving on your road? Do you find yourself getting frustrated or angry when you're not getting the praise or the success or the possessions or the obedient children or the easy life? That you want, because listen, listen, if, if you find yourself getting angry and frustrated because you want something so bad and you can't have it, then that is a sure sign that our hearts are being controlled by selfish desires instead of the love of Christ. So question, what controls you? What controls you? Are you controlled by the love of Christ? Because if you're anything like me right now, you're thinking, well, sometimes I am. But if I'm honest, and we can be honest this morning, right? If we're going to be honest, if I'm honest, the truth is, is that often I'm controlled by selfish desires. And when I don't get what I want, I get angry. Anyone else relate to that? Anyone else relate to that? Just me? Just me this morning? Anyone else relate to that? Come on, we can relate to that, can't we? Selfish desires. And so what do we do? If we want to be people who are controlled by the love of Christ, what do we do? Here's what we must do. We must run to the feet of Jesus and ask him to show us his love again in the gospel. That's what we need to do. We need to run to the feet of Jesus and ask him to show us his love again in the gospel. Because when we see the love of Christ, that's when we are controlled by the love of Christ. When we can see the love of Christ, that's when we are controlled by the love of Christ. And so here's the truth that we need to receive today. You and I, here's the big idea, it's this. The more that we can see the love of Christ in the gospel, the more we'll be controlled by the love of Christ in our lives. Let me say that again. The more you and I can see the love of Jesus Christ in the gospel, the more we'll be controlled by the love of Christ in our lives. Which leads us right into our first point today, which is this. If I want to see the love of Christ in the gospel so that I'm controlled by the love of Christ in my life, then I must see these two truths from our text here this morning. Here's truth number one, gospel truth number one. You could jot this down. Here it is, up on the screen. Christ died for all so that all would die. Gospel truth number one. Christ died for all so that all would die. 
Have a look with me at verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Here we go. The Apostle Paul says this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So let's begin by considering this man, the Apostle Paul, because Paul was a man who was controlled by the love of Christ, utterly controlled by the love of Christ. He was so overwhelmed by how much Jesus Christ loved him, that the love of Christ was like this powerful force. It was like a a hurricane wind that pushed him forward into fruitfulness. It was like a hurricane wind pushing him forward into fruitfulness, but it was also like this giant magnet that pulled him back from walking in patterns of sin. The love of Christ for the Apostle Paul was so powerful. It was like this force pushing him forward like a hurricane into fruitfulness. But it was also like this powerful magnet pulling him back and restraining him from walking in patterns of sin. So we know that the Apostle Paul was not a perfect man. We know that from Romans chapter 7. But he was a man who was controlled by the love of Christ. He was controlled by the love of Christ. This fueled everything that he did. This fueled his ministry. This is why he loved people. This is why he planted churches. This is why he preached the gospel in dangerous places. He just seemed not to care whether he lived or died or was killed. Preaching the gospel. This is why he said things like this up on the screen. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Look what he says. But I do not account my life of any value. Who says that? I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. How on earth could Paul talk that way? I do not account my life of any value. How could he talk that way? Here's how. The love of of Christ controlled him. It controlled him. And so, and so how can we here today, you and I, how can we become people like that? How can we become people who are controlled by the love of Christ? Well, thankfully, Paul tells us right here in verse 14. Look what he says. Look what he says, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because, because, We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, the love of Christ, it's controlling me. And here's why. Because I've made these two conclusions. One, that Christ died for all. Two, that all have died. This is why the love of Christ controls me. Clear? Not at all. Not at all. What on earth is he talking about? Well, let's look at this first truth that Paul says. What does he mean when he says that Christ died for all? Well, this is what he means. He means that Jesus Christ died for all of his sheep. That Jesus Christ died for all of his people. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for all, for all, over all time who would believe in him. Look what Jesus says about this in the Gospel of John. John chapter 6 up on the screen. Look what he says. Notice he says, all, 
all that the Father gives me will come to me. Very clear. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He continues in John chapter 6. Look what he says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He goes on in John chapter 10 to say this. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He continues. Look what he says next. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died for his sheep. He died for his people. He died for all people of all time who would ever place their faith in him. He came from heaven to earth and he gave himself over to be crucified. And as he was nailed to that cross and he was lifted up, he took upon himself all of the sin of all of his people for all time. He was clothed in our sin. And the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin was then poured out upon him in full. And he paid our sin debt with the currency of his suffering. And when he had paid it in full, he said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit and he died. Jesus Christ died for his sheep. He died for his people. He died for all who would believe. And as Paul considered this truth, that Christ died for him, as he saw the depths of the love that Christ has for him, it controlled him. And so before we talk about the love of Christ for all, I want to talk about the love of Christ for you. For you for you sitting here today, for each one of us, for you personally, consider the depths of the love of Jesus Christ for you. Consider what he was willing to go through for you. For you. Consider what he was willing to lose so that you would gain eternal life. Consider what he was willing to lose for you so that you would gain eternal life. He was willing to lose more than anyone has ever lost. Because on the cross, Jesus took upon himself our sin. He was clothed with our sin. And therefore, he became what he hates the most. He became our sin. Look down at verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 21. Look what Paul says. He says, for our sake, do you see that? For our sake, for your sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin. Jesus was clothed in our sin. And because of that, he was looked upon by God the Father as though he was sin. And in that moment, when he took upon himself our sin, he was clothed in our sin, he lost everything. Because he lost what he values the most, which is fellowship with the Father. 
When he became our sin, the perfect fellowship that he had had with God the Father for all of eternity, all of eternity spent in the presence of the Father, perfect joy, perfect pleasure in the presence of the Father, suddenly gone, torn away, ripped away from him, his greatest joy gone. Which is why from the cross he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a degree of suffering that we cannot even begin to understand. The presence of God silenced his greatest joy, ripped away the Son of God forsaken. Because his greatest joy from all of eternity past is torn away. And consider what followed then. The wrath of God. The wrath of God. And so yes, the physical suffering that Jesus Christ experienced on the cross is beyond all comprehension, horrific beyond description. But it wasn't the anticipation of his physical suffering that caused Jesus to sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't the anticipation of his physical suffering that caused him to fall on his face and pray to the Father, if there's any way, please take this cup from me. No. It wasn't the anticipation of the physical suffering. It was the anticipation of his spiritual suffering that the joy of his fellowship with the Father that he's had for all of eternity would be torn away. It would be interrupted. But not only that, it would be replaced by his wrath. That that the joy that he's known for all of eternity in the presence of his father would be torn away, taken, interrupted, and then replaced by his wrath. And on that cross, Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God alone. This is what Jesus endured for you. He did this for you. This is a suffering that we cannot even begin to imagine. And why was he willing to do this? Here's why. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. He loves you. And so he suffered immeasurably for you. For you. To save you from hell. And to save you to God. Consider the depths of the love of Jesus Christ for you, for you personally, for you. Because as Paul saw the depths of this love, of the love of Christ, he was controlled by it. Question, can you see the depths of the love of Christ for you? Can you see it? Can you perceive it? Can you grasp it? Because there's even more. Consider this. That when Jesus died for his sheep, all of his sheep died. When Jesus died for his sheep, all of his sheep died. And maybe you think, well, that doesn't sound very good, but it is. Look back at verse 14. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And here's what this means. That if you are here today and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then the moment you place your faith in Christ, God united you to Christ. The moment you place your faith in Christ, God united you together to Christ. Look how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6 up on the screen. Look what he says. Verse 
He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so here's what Paul is saying. Here's what he means. That, that when you placed your faith in Christ, that God united you to Christ in such a way that when Jesus died on the cross, God counted it as you dying on the cross. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 14 that all have died. It means that the old you, the person that you used to be, the person uh, who was literally on the road to hell, the person who wanted nothing to do with God, the person you used to be, was killed with Jesus on the cross. This is what he means when he says, therefore, all have died. And when Paul considered this truth, that he died in Christ, that the man he used to be would never again take another breath, that the man he once was would never again take another step on the earth as he considered this because this man was dead as he meditated on these truths. Christ died for me and I died in Christ. Christ died for me and I died in Christ. Christ died for me and I died in Christ. As, these, as he meditated on these truths, here's what happened. They fell into his heart. And when these truths went from here into his heart, he saw the love of Christ. And then he felt the love of Christ. And then he was controlled by the love of Christ. When these truths fell into his heart, he, he saw the love of Christ. And then he felt the love of Christ. And then he was controlled by the love of Christ. Question, have these truths fallen into your heart? Have these truths made it from here into your heart? We can kind of think of it like this. Like a, a glass of clear water. And you take some food coloring and you, you drop one drop in and it hits the surface. And then you drop the second drop in and it hits the surface. And it begins to kind of dissipate and color everything. As Paul considered these truths, Christ died for me and I died in Christ. They dropped into his heart and they colored his whole heart with the love of Christ. Have these truths dropped into your heart? That Christ died for me and I died in Christ. Have they dropped into your heart? Because when, when they dropped into Paul's heart, he saw the love of Christ and then he felt the love of Christ and then he was controlled by the love of Christ. But notice this awesome truth in verse 14. Paul says that this salvation is not just for him. It's way bigger than that. Again, verse 14, look what he says. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. So Paul is part of the all here, but the all is way bigger than Paul. Paul's not only considering his own salvation. He's considering the salvation of all who would ever believe. He's not just considering his own story. He's considering the story. The story of God. The story of redemption. The story about Jesus Christ and how he is the redeemer. So we can think of it like this. Imagine just thinking about your story. Consider your own personal testimony, your own story, the story of one person for whom Jesus Christ died, the story of one person who has been rescued from hell and saved to God. 
Now, how big is the sum of the love of Christ for you? How big is that? How big is the sum of the love of Christ for you? Add to that picture the Apostle Paul. So now it's you and Paul. And, and, and the love of Christ for Paul is the same as the love of Christ for you. So how big is the love of Christ for both of you? How big is the sum of that love for, for two of his saints? Let's bring in another three people over here. Another 10, another 10. Now we've got 25 people. How big is the sum of the love of Christ for 25 Let's add another hundred, another a thousand, another hundred thousand, another million, another billion people. And we still haven't reached the number of current believers on the face of the earth. Never mind all who have gone before us who are with the Lord in glory and all that will come after us who have yet to place their faith in Christ. How big is the sum of the love of Christ for all of his people? Because this is what Paul is talking about when he says in verse 14, the love of Christ controls us because we concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And as Paul sees the size of the love of Christ for his people, what happens? Verse 14 happens. The love of Christ controls him. It pushes him forward like this powerful force, like a hurricane wind, pushing him into fruitfulness. And then also like a giant magnet pulling him back, restraining him from walking in patterns of sin. And this is exactly what happens to you and I when we see his love as well. We can think of it like this up on the screen. Where does this love begin? It begins here at the feet of Jesus Christ. At the feet of Jesus Christ. It begins right here with spending much time with him. That's where it begins. Pastor Craig talked about this last week. This, this, it's, it's, it's about spending time with him. When we spend time with him and, and we are a people of prayer, and we're talking to the Lord in prayer, and, and we open up his word, and he's speaking to us through his word, and he begins to show us the greatness and the awesomeness of his love supernaturally through his word, through the gospel. We begin to consider the love of Christ for me, for me, how, how big and how awesome and glorious the love of Christ is for me. But then we begin to think about the love of Christ for us. The love of Christ for us as a local church body. And then we begin to consider the love of Christ for all. For all who, who believe in him, who are on the face of the earth. All who have gone before us. All who will come after us. And as we begin to consider the glory and the awesomeness of this love, his love controls us. It controls us. And so yes, consider the love of Christ for you. Meditate on the love of Christ for you. Ask the Spirit of God to show you the greatness of the love, the dimensions of the love of Christ for you. But don't stop there. Open the lens up even more and, and consider the love of Christ for all of his people. Because if we want to see the love of Christ in a way that we're controlled by the love of Christ, we must see this, that Christ died for all so that all would die. Which leads us right into our second point, which is this. If I want to see the love of Christ so that I'm controlled by the love of Christ, I have to see the second gospel truth right here in this text. It's this. Christ died for all so that all would live. Christ died for all so that all would live. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. Paul continues. 
and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So here's what we need to see. That Jesus didn't only die so that we would die. Jesus also died so that we would live. Meaning that Jesus Christ died so that his people would be set free to live out the purpose for which they were created. This is why Jesus died. He died to set us free so that we would live out the purpose for which we were created. And what is that purpose? What is, that, what is your purpose? What is my purpose? Well, let's let God tell us. Isaiah 43, up on the screen. God says this. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, notice, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. God's people have been created for God's glory. This is our purpose. This is our mission. If you're looking for a purpose statement or a mission statement for your life, there it is in Isaiah 43. Created for his glory. This is why we exist. This is our purpose. Paul echoes the same truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look what he says. He says, For whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is why we exist. This is our purpose. And this is why Jesus died. Jesus died to set us free to live out this purpose for which we exist, to glorify God. So if that's our purpose, to glorify God, then what does that mean? How would you define that? This is your purpose. This is my purpose. How do we define our purpose? To glorify God. We could jot this down. Here's what it means to glorify God. A simple definition is this. To glorify God means this. To live in a way that shows the worth of God. That's what it means to glorify God. It means to live in a way to show the worth, the worth, the infinite worth of God. This is why we exist. This is our whole purpose, to live in a way that shows the worth of God. And so how do we do that? How do we live out this purpose in our lives? How do we live in a way that shows the worth of God? We'll look at verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. So Jesus Christ died so that his people would no longer live for themselves. Jesus Christ died so that we would no longer live for ourselves. Jesus died so that we would no longer live to be respected or live to be liked or live to be popular or live to be accepted or live to be praised or live to be successful or live to be right all the time. Jesus died for us so we would no longer live for sinful, wicked pleasures. He died so we would no longer live for money or for things or for endless entertainment or to get our way or to have perfect kids or to have a perfect marriage or to be honored or exalted or loved by everyone or to have an easy life. 
Jesus died to set us free from slavery to these selfish desires so we would no longer live for ourselves. This is why Jesus died. But how, how exactly does this work? How does the death of Jesus free us from being controlled by selfish desires? Well, here's how. Here's how. Through our union with Christ in his death. Look what the Apostle Paul says about this in Romans chapter 6 up on the screen. Look what he says. He says, we know, we know something. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that, here's the reason, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died, that's us, the one who has died has been set free from sin. So before we were united to Christ, we were enslaved to sin. But then we were crucified with Christ. That means that the slave of sin was killed, died on the cross, gone forever, will never return, praise the Lord. But that's only half the story. Because we were united to Christ in his death, but then Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? Look at verse 17. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, so in union with Christ, we, when he died, when he died, we died. But when, when Jesus rose, we rose as new creations. This is what baptism is a picture of. Baptism, if you've seen baptisms here before, it's a, a beautiful picture of the spiritual truth that when someone is united to Christ, they are united with him in his death and they plunge under the water. They're united with him in his death and in his burial, but then they're also united with him in his resurrection and they are raised through faith in Christ as new creations. And listen, new creations in Jesus Christ are no longer enslaved to sin. Let me say that again. New creations in Jesus Christ are no longer enslaved to sin. And maybe you're thinking, well, then why do I still struggle so much with sin? Why? For the same reason I do. Because the presence of sin still remains. The power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin still remains. Paul speaks to this truth as well in Romans chapter 6. Look what he says up on the screen. Look what he says. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Why does he write that? Because there's still sin in us. And what does it want to do? It wants to reign. It wants to make us obey its passions. There's sin in our mortal bodies. So the, its power has been broken, but its presence still remains. We can think of it like this. Imagine, if you would, a pirate ship. And there's a pirate on that ship, and he has a slave. And, and when the pirate tells the slave what to do, the slave does it all the time, 100% of the time. So when the pirate says, jump, the slave says... Okay, okay, we're going to try that one more time. Let's have another... Okay, when the pirate says, jump, the slave says... Right! But then this other ship pulls up and this hero swings over and he grabs the pirate. He takes him below the deck. He throws him in the jail. He closes the door. He locks it. He throws the key into the ocean. He has set the slave free. It's no longer a slave. Now this person has been liberated to serve this 
awesome, glorious captain. Here's the problem. The pirate's still alive. And he's still screaming out commands and orders from under the deck, from under the floorboard, saying, sin, 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 sin. Because that voice is so familiar, because this individual who's now free has lived so long serving that pirate, it's hard to resist those commands. Likewise, the pirate of sin is still in us, but we have been liberated. We are no longer its slave, which means this, that no one here today in Christ is ever stuck in sin with no way out. Never. No one here today in Christ is ever stuck in sin with no way out. Never, ever, ever. Yes, sin is still screaming at us from below the floorboards. Yes, too often we hear that voice and we give ourselves over to it, but we are not enslaved to it anymore. We are not. And here are some of the desires up on the screen that we are not enslaved to anymore. Look at this. We are no longer enslaved for the, uh, to the desire to be respected or liked or accepted or praised or honored or loved by people. We are not enslaved to that any longer. We are not enslaved to this up on the screen. The desire for sinful pleasures. There are some of us here in this room and there's some pleasure that we have been engaged in and we feel like this thing has its claws into us and we feel like we are enslaved to this in Jesus name you are not we are not enslaved to sinful pleasures we're not enslaved for the desire for money or possessions or endless entertainment we are not we are not enslaved to these desires the desire to get my way or to have perfect children, or to have the perfect spouse, or to have an easy life. We are no longer enslaved to these desires because Jesus died and was raised to break the power of this over our lives. And why do you do this? Here's why. Here's why. So we would stop living for ourselves. He set us free so we would stop living for ourselves and start living for the purpose for which we were created. Look down again at verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, but for him. And now we've come to the biggest reason in our text for why Christ died. So yes, Christ died so we would die. Yes, Christ died so that the power of sin would be broken in our lives. But why did we need to die? Why did the power of sin need to be broken? Here's why. So we would no longer live for ourselves, but instead would live for him and for his glory. This is our purpose, to live for his glory. But what does that actually look like? Practically speaking, what does that actually look like to live in a way that shows the worth of God? What well, looks like this. Let's let Jesus tell us. John chapter 15 up on the screen. Look what he says. By this, my father is glorified. By what? What is it? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. By this, my father is glorified. That you bear much fruit. This is what glorifies God. To be people who are bearing fruit. Maybe thinking, well, what kind of fruit exactly? Well, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 up on the screen. Look what Paul says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Let's pause. Curious. 
How many of us here today have this verse memorized? How many of us? Okay, a lot of us, a lot of us. Sometimes when we have these verses memorized, we can just kind of read through them and not really think about what they mean. Consider this. God is glorified in your lives and, and we are living out our purpose when we have lives that are dominated by love. Love for God and love for others. Isn't that what we want? God is glorified in our lives when we have lives that are dominated by joy. He gets glory in that. Isn't that what we want? God is glorified when we have lives that are dominated by the peace of God. Isn't that what we want? And patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Aren't these things that we want? This is what glorifies God. So we can think of it like this up on the screen. That again, it begins at the feet of Jesus. It begins at the feet of Jesus. Spending much time with him. Spending much time with him. And, and, and you're in prayer and you're speaking to the Lord. And you've got his word open. He's speaking to you. And he's showing you the greatness of his love for all of his people. And as we are overwhelmed because we see the love of Christ. That's when the love of Christ controls us and pushes us forward into fruitfulness. His, when we see his love, it's like a force and it pushes us forward into fruitfulness and restrains us from walking in patterns of sin so that, there's a reason for this, so that we can begin to fulfill our purpose, which is to glorify God. This is what Christ does in us as we spend time at his feet. And so is that the end of the story here? Well, it's not. There's more. Look again at verse 15. Verse 15. Paul says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, now notice, who for their sake died and was raised. So Christ died so that his people would be liberated to live out their purpose, which is his glory. But he also died for our sake. And he was raised for our sake. And here's what this means. That in the gospel, in the gospel, you have received the two greatest treasures in the universe. Did you know that? In the gospel, you have received the, true, the two greatest treasures in the universe. Because you've received the treasure of knowing God and the treasure of living out the greatest purpose that there is, which is to live for his glory. You've received the two greatest treasures, the two greatest gifts that there are anywhere. The, the treasure of God himself and then the treasure of being able to live for the greatest purpose that there is, his glory. And as you and I begin to unwrap these gifts and we begin to spend time with Christ and at his feet and getting to know him and hearing from him and loving him and then living for his glory, we begin to live out the abundant Christian life. We begin to live out the satisfied Christian life. We begin to be a people who are truly alive. Because this is what true life looks like. It looks like knowing who we've been created to know, who is Christ, and then seeing what we've been created to see, which is the greatness of his love, and then doing what we've been created to do, which is to glorify him. This is the abundant life in Christ. This is what it looks like to truly live. Now, I'm not the handiest guy in the world, and I'm often using the wrong tool for the job. 
So it wouldn't be weird to walk by my office and see me uh, hitting a nail into the wall with the back of a screwdriver. Okay, I'm often using the wrong tool for the job. And if that screwdriver had a face and a voice, it would be saying, stop, why are you doing this? This is what I was created for. This isn't my purpose. But if I found a screw and I used that same screwdriver and I started to screw in a screw to the wall and that screwdriver had a voice and it could talk, it would say, thank you. This feels right. I'm doing what I've been created to do. Likewise, when we are doing what we've been created to do, which is to know God and to love God and to spend time with God and then live for his glory, that's when we feel right. This is when we live the truly abundant Christian life. And we'll close here. Look again at verse 14. Verse 14, Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so because Jesus Christ died for us and because we have died in him and because he has made us new creations, And because he has set us free from the power of sin to no longer live for ourselves. And because he has set us free to live out our purpose, which is to glorify him. Let's get after it. Let's get after it as as God's people, as God's church. Let's get after our purpose, living at our purpose, which is to live for his glory. And where does it begin? Here's where it begins. At his feet. At his feet, where we see his love in the gospel. Because as we see the love of Christ in the gospel, that's when we feel his love in our hearts. And that's when we're controlled by his love in our lives. Let's pray. Let's pray. So Father, we are so thankful. We are so thankful. God, what we are thankful for goes beyond words. It goes beyond ways that we can explain in language. It goes into the spiritual where the Holy Spirit has to communicate these things that that are, are too deep for us to communicate with words because how can we thank you for the gospel? How can we ever say thank you in a way that that really truly communicates our hearts that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses and then you you gave us life and you saved us from the wrath of God at the cost that is beyond all understanding and you rescued us to yourself and so we can know you now and know you forever and experience fullness of joy and fullness of pleasure in your presence for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth how can we communicate our thanks to you Thank you, God. Would you please work in us? Please. Because unless you are supernaturally opening up our eyes as we spend time at your feet and showing us the greatness of your love, unless you're doing it, God, our hearts won't change. You are the one who does it. So help us to do what you've called us to do, to be at your feet. You've called us to be at your feet, to be a people who are spending much time with you because that's the place where we are transformed. We are transformed at your feet and in your presence. And so God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we can hold your word in our hands and we can, we can have our eyes opened by the spirit to see the greatness of your love for us 
individually and the greatness of your love for us as a church and the greatness of your love for your people for all time that is so big and so awesome and so glorious. Let your love control us. Let your love control us and push us forward into fruitfulness and restrain us and pull us back from walking in sin. Let your love control us. God, would you help us now? Help us to see the greatness of your love as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.